0: You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance uh, now to come before your word. Lord, we thank you. Uh, that all those years ago, uh, as Moses and Israelites gathered around the mountain, God, you spoke your commands to your people. God, we recognize uh, the grace that that was, that you uh, could have left us in our slavery and in our sin, and yet you spoke. And you continued that uh, as you sent your Son. You could have left us in our sin. You could have left us uh, bound to the work of the devil, and unable to free ourselves. And yet you sent your Son to bring freedom to us and to bring life to us with grace and with kindness. God, we thank you that you have called us and invited us into relationship with you. And Lord, we pray that we would be obedient, not for the sake of earning anything from you, but for the sake of walking in relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There was a buzzword in that, in that uh, passage that was just read that, uh, that may have caught your attention. It's the word jealousy. Maybe uh, you are familiar with that word. It is not a positive word. Almost every single time we use it. When we think of jealousy, we think of evil. We think of ugly emotion from one another. Maybe jealousy, you've seen it in your workplace as people try to vie for position over another. And if somebody gets something that somebody else wants, there's some jealousy there. Uh, maybe you've seen it in relationships between people. It becomes kind of a, you know, spiteful or, 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 or desiring over one another, and that's not good. I, I certainly see it in our children. Uh, anytime you have a group of three together, there's always somebody left out. And so uh, we see that a lot in our kids. At two years old in Lydia, it's still pretty cute. When she says, you know, Diddy do it, that's how she says her name, Lydia, she says Diddy. And she just doesn't want to be left out. If she's left out, she's going to let you know that Diddy wants to do it too. And so at two years old, we smile and we laugh along. It loses its, its cuteness pretty quick after that, though. Like jealousy becomes not cute anymore. When one kid's getting all the attention because it's, you know, their, their game day, they're playing the sport, or it's their test we're trying to get ready for, or their homework we're working on, the other kids are bound to get all upset because they're not getting... The attention. Jealousy isn't pretty. It's it's ugly when we see it. Uh, We know it, uh, you know, as the phrase being green with envy, uh, and then we know the phrase being uh, the 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 jealousy is the green eyed monster. I'd heard of that, so I googled that. Shakespeare came up with that, uh, from what I found out. So that's been around a long time. That we don't like the idea of jealousy. It's a picture. If somebody, if you called me jealous, I, I would be defensive. I wouldn't like that, right? Uh, if somebody, we think of somebody who's jealous as, as petty, they're, they're insecure, they're unable to kind of handle where they are in life, and so they're insecure, and they're, they're seeking after what somebody else has, and so uh, that is how, what we think. We, we just, when we hear somebody is jealous, it's an ugly word. So what in the world are we to make of Exodus 20, verse 5, where the Lord himself, this is not somebody, I mean, all Bible is God's word, but he himself is speaking, and he says, "I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." Somebody want to want to you know write. He said, "God, we <clears throat> we need to get you a, a PR person to help choose the words you have in your in your press releases, so we can pick nicer words. Because jealous people are going to hear that and they're not going to like it." Sure enough, uh, that has happened plenty of times. I'd heard this uh, story, so I went and found it you know from from her mouth, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey herself. Uh, was in church around 26, 27 years old. She said, and uh, the pastor. She was really engaged with worship. The music was good, and the pastor was talking about the attributes of God, and she was really caught up into it. And and the pastor was talking about how God, you know, God is all powerful, He's omnipotent, and He's omniscient, and He knows all things, and he she, he was going on about God. And, and Oprah said she was really engaged with it until he said that the Lord your God is a jealous God, and she kind of stopped and looked up and. Like, wait a second, I, I don't like that. And her, I, this is her word. She said, it didn't feel right in her spirit. It didn't feel right in my spirit. And she points to that moment as the moment she began to walk away from historic biblical Christianity. Thinking about God being jealous. That didn't settle well with her. And maybe it doesn't settle well with you either. The Bible describes God as jealous. How, how, could, that, how could that be true? How could that, how could that be a good thing? We know from God's Word that God is perfect. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous. And all that He does, He is perfect. So His jealousy must be a part of that. His jealousy must be good because God Himself is good. Now, we may not use these words today because we, we may try to avoid this word. But, but even in human terms, we, we can think of jealousy in a positive way. As a married man, I am jealous for my wife's affections. Not in the sense that I'm I'm skeptical of her or doubting of her, but I am committed to our exclusivity. That is what's going to make our marriage work. I am jealous that she would not pursue somebody else in a relationship like like a a marriage relationship. We, We are exclusive. That jealousy, I'm jealous for our exclusive relationship. That's what makes marriage work. The way jealous is used here in Exodus 20 and multiple other times in the Bible of God. Uh, I looked it up in one Hebrew dictionary that describes this Hebrew word as, a, as a, a combination of the words in English, jealous and zealous. So somebody's zealous for something. They're passionate about it. They're enthusiastic about it. But the word jealous also encapsures this idea of possessive it's giving something that belongs to him. So, in a very positive, awesome way, God is jealous for your affections. God desires your glory and your a relationship with you because it belongs to Him. You and every single person on this earth was, were knitted together in your mother's womb. God Himself created you, formed you. He, he, you belong to God. And so God wants you, desires for you to be in relationship with Him. We are God's creation. We are created for His glory. There is no one greater to live for, no one greater to know, no one greater to be in a relationship with than God Himself. And it is a gift of grace that He desires to be in relationship with you. His jealousy is good news for us. God is not indifferent towards you. God does not look at you and say, Hey, you come with me, you go somewhere else, I don't care. Either way, that would be unloving of God. But God is jealous for our affections. Praise God that He wants us, that He wants to be in relationship with us, that He is pursuing a holy relationship with us so that we can know Him forever. God's pursuit of us is the the foundation and the background of the Ten Commandments. We started last week looking at the Ten Commandments, taking one a week, and we focused last week at what happens right before the Ten Commandments. God brings the people of Israel uh, so probably over you know, 600,000 men plus women and children, so maybe 2 million people, out of Egypt brings them out into the wilderness so that they could be in relationship with Him. God did not come to the nation of Israel inside of Egypt while they're in slavery and say, hey, if you keep these commandments, I will save you from your slavery. No, it was the other way around. God saved them out of slavery and then said, hey, to continue this relationship, for this relationship to go well, for us to be able to, to live together and enjoy a fruitful relationship, here's the commands that I give you. Grace came first. Salvation came first. And then He invites us into obedience, into a walking, living relationship with Him. But that's not how many of us think of the Ten Commandments. Many of us come to the Ten Commandments and say, hey, look, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner like everybody else. I mess up sometimes. But if I look at this list of ten I'm doing pretty good. Maybe six, seven, eight, nine I've kept. And so as long as I, you know, passing is what, 60%. So as long as I keep six out of the 10, I'm good. And God likes me. I have God's favor because I'm I'm above passing grade. We grade ourselves on the 10 commandments. That's not not how God intended for us to keep the 10. Not not the the intention of the 10 commandments. As we'll see, as we go through all these, we've all broken all of these. So it's not good. We, if it was about a grade, we wouldn't do so well. But that wasn't the point. The point is God has already given you favor. God has already given us grace. God has already saved us. Now, how do we walk in relationship with Him? Salvation, God's grace came first. Now, it looks, now He's inviting us to live in relationship with Him. And these commandments are ways that we can follow Him into that relationship. God's jealousy for us. God's desire for relationship. It's about us giving Him the glory He deserves. And so we saw the first commandment last week that we should have no other gods before Him. That's about who we worship. We worship just one God, the one true God. The second commandment sounds very similar, but it's really about how we worship. So the first commandment is about worshiping just the one true God. The second commandment is about how we worship Him. He is jealous for our affections to be toward Him and to be in a right way. That our worship to Him should be in a way that's not a false picture of Him. So the second commandment, I could summarize it this way by saying, don't limit God to an image. Don't limit God to an image. Exodus 24, in the first part of verse 5 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. So God forbids that we make any kind of image to represent Him. And we get kind of that three-tier picture. He said, don't make anything in the heaven like a star or the sun or a bird. Nothing on the earth like an animal or a mountain. Nothing under the sea like a, any kind of sea creature or fish or anything like that. Worship God not by an image, but worship God for who He is. When God gave this command to Israel, this was radically countercultural. Every nation around Israel, Egypt they just came from, Canaan that they're going to, all the nations around them had gods as a physical thing you could touch. They had made a statue or an idol, a structure, an image, something you could see and point to. And so the, the psalm that Caitlin read out of Psalm 115 says, the, the nations say, where is their God? They're looking at Israel like, hey, you said you worship a God, but we don't, we don't see Him. Where is He? They're confused by this. And Israel struggles <laughs> to keep this command. This commandment, the second commandment, is probably the the very first one that they broke. In fact, Moses hadn't even made it down off the mountain with the commands, and the people of Israel break this. Moses is up there and what the Israelites feel like is too long, and so they get bored, and they turn to Aaron in Exodus 32, and they say, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron takes their gold jewelry and forms it together and makes an image into a, a, a golden calf, so you know a young cow that's gold. That's what he made for them, and so it sounds like when you when you read that, you're saying, okay, instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping this other god. But then the very next thing Aaron says is, "Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord." And if you follow that in your Bible, that Lord's in all caps, so it's Yahweh, God's divine name. So Aaron has, it, yes, they all the commandments. You break any of you, breaking the first commandment. But specifically, you're breaking, he's breaking the second commandment. He's saying this golden calf is the Lord, is Yahweh, is God Himself. Worship Him. Moses hadn't even finished getting the laws, and Israel and Aaron and all the God's people sinned by breaking this commandment. That bull could not encapsulate all of who God is. Doesn't matter how shiny it is. Doesn't matter how well it's done. No formed image could ever capture who God is. God is. And that's because it is, it is a, a physical, limited representation. So, of course, it cannot encapture all of who God is. It doesn't matter if it's the most beautiful creation, the most beautiful picture, the most beautiful statue in the whole world. It doesn't matter if it's as tall as the Empire State Building or as wide as Texas. It could still not capture all of who God is. Because it doesn't matter how big you create it, we could create. we could get in an airplane or a rocket ship if we need to, and we could fly over it. And we'd say, yep, there's God. And there was God. I passed him. <laughs> That's not God. You cannot limit God to a spot that you could fly over. That would not be God. God is omnipresent. He is present at all times, and he has been everywhere forever. No, no imager, every, every single image or statue is, is limited to one spot. Even if you've got a million of them, then it can't be in a million and one places. It's always got one spot. And John four twenty four, all, all, all other places in Scripture tell us God is spirit. To limit God to a, a physical lo- location is to try to put God in a box. and He doesn't fit in that box. Doesn't matter how big your box is. You can't make a big enough box for God to fit into. He's not going to fit in there. Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Ha, can I get away from God? He says, if I, if I ascend to the heaven, you are there. He says, if I go down to Sheol, meaning down below the earth, you are there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, that's a reference to the sunrise, all the way in the east. If I take the wings of the morning, or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, meaning all the way to the west, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You can't, you can't escape God's presence. God is everywhere. So you can never have an idol, a structure, an image to fully capture who God is. God is is knowable. We can know God for who He is, but He's not fully comprehensible. You cannot fit God inside these, you know, 10 square inches or whatever inside your head. You you cannot fully comprehend God. And so many times when we create an image, what we're saying is, this is who God is. Do you know what an image would do? It'd make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? Somebody who doesn't know God wants to ask you, what's God like? You could just point to it. You could say, there He is. He's right over there. Let me, let me show you to him. Or I got a picture on my phone. Here. That's what we do with our kids. Like, hey, hey, how many kids you got? Hey, let me show you a picture. You can show it to him. You can't, you can't do that with God. It'd be easier if you could, right? Or, or what about when you go to, when, you, when something's wrong? You know, if, if you could have God in a pocket-sized idol, you know? Or it could be bigger. It could be, you know, it fits in your truck or something. When something's wrong, then you could just take God to the problem. Man, you could go to the hospitals and you could just carry God around and you could just heal all these people. Uh, when, when, when you're sick, you know, you could hold on to it. Or when, you could take it with you to work, and your money would multiply, and, and you, could, you could do all kinds. Wouldn't that be great? If God was just this little statue, this little magical feature you could just carry around and do all kinds of good things with. In fact, actually, that would be awful, because then would we would be in charge. And you know how that's going to go? It's going to go really bad. It's going to go really, really poorly. God is not someone we can control and manipulate and, and move around where we want Him to go. That would make us God. And we're bad at being God. Really bad at being God. We can't comprehend all that God's in charge of. We can't control God. We we are not God. And any idol, any structure, any image, anything that we have made to be God is really just a way of saying, I'm God. Because I'm in charge. I made this, and I am going to be God. We saw idolatry in the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. And we, we want to be in charge. We don't want anything else to be God. We want to be God. And as we make an image, as we form something, that's what we're doing. We're trying to be the one who's in charge. Do not limit God to an image. Over and over again in the Old Testament, people fail at this horribly. One of my favorite chapters that condemns this, Isaiah 44, uh, he talks about cutting, somebody goes out and cuts down a, a tree and with half of the tree, he cuts it up and splits wood so he can warm his hands and cook his supper. And the other half, he forms it into an image, and he bows down and worships it. He said, how ridiculous is that? That you would think that this thing you can burn over here for your food is the same thing that's God over here. You say, okay, that's fair enough, but um, sorry, Pastor, I, that wasn't really a temptation I faced today. I wasn't going like, to go home and cut down some wood and start worshiping it. I wasn't going to form a, uh, an image out of metal and, and bow down. That just wasn't a, a temptation. I said, okay, well, good. I'm sorry I preached this and wasted your time. Maybe there's, maybe there's no level to this, right? Well, what, is, what is it that's underneath this? We, we may think of, you know, you could, you could, people sometimes track down this. Okay, I'm not going to have nativity sets or, or make coloring images for my kids. I don't think that your kids are worshiping your coloring sheets, and I haven't seen anybody bow down to their nativity sets. Although, if you do, you should repent of that. Like, that's, that's not good, a good way to worship God. So that's, that's not here what's going on here. But there are some Christian traditions, not, not as much around here, but there are Christian traditions that have idols or statues or monuments and they bow down to, to tangible objects as a way that they think that they're worshiping God. They may even call themselves Christians. So there's a place to be warned about the very literal and direct meaning here of not making an image or an idol. Other cultures even today do that. So be careful wherever you go, wherever you travel, even, probably even closer than I think, there's places that actually do this. But beyond just the physical, uh, J.I. Packer says God's, really, uh, God's real attack is on the mental images of which metal images are more truly the consequence than the cause. Do you have a mental image of God? Do you picture Him in your mind? Now, it's okay. God describes Himself, Jesus, as the, the good shepherd. And he, talks, he uses the parable about a father running out to his children. So we can, we can use analogies to describe God, and sometimes that's in physical form. But we are—we got to be careful that we don't limit God to any one image that we have, whether it's physical or in our minds. Be careful not to limit Him to any box. Doesn't matter how beautiful the box is. Doesn't matter how great it is. We love the parable of the two lost sons, the prodigal son. It's a great picture. God is that, and so much more. If we've got a mental image of God, then we may whittle Him down, dwindle Him down to something we can get our minds around. Uh, Jen Wilkin has a really helpful way of thinking about, about how do we do this. We may not whittle God with a, out of wood, but we may take all the things that we've heard about God and whittle down to something that we can manage, right? When we read about God or hear about God, we say, I don't like that, that description of God, like Oprah did with jealousy. She just cut that one off. So, I, I don't know about that one. You may do that with God's sovereignty. I, what about God being in control of all things or, or, or some other aspect of God's character. You say, I I hear you, but I don't don't like that one. And so we whittle it away and we begin to take things off of God. Sometimes we treat God like Build-A-Bear, right? You go to a store and you say, I like this part and I like this part and I like this part. And here's the God that I worship. And we may not have him physically like a stuffed animal or an idol, but in our minds, we have picked and choosed a few things here and there, and that's the God we worship. That is a temptation we all face. We all struggle with comprehending and worshiping God as He says He is in His Word. We all are tempted to whittle out, to take away things from God that are not the things that we don't like. When our our sin, when our character rubs up against God and we say, okay, this part of me doesn't like this part of God, the question is, who's going to give? We want to whittle away at God. God wants to whittle away at our sin. God wants to take our sinful habits and take that away not the other direction. When we come to a, a picture of God, we want to picture God for all of who he is and trust him to be who he is. If you put that in the kind of the negative sense of don't limit God to an image, I've thought of a way to flip that around. What's, what's kind of the positive command, the, the alternative? Okay, that's something I don't do. What's something I do? What's the positive direction of the second command? God has revealed himself to us. We can know God for who he is, but he didn't use a statue. He didn't use images. He didn't leave us a painting. He didn't draw us a picture. What's the the most direct, what's the primary way God revealed himself? Not by images, but by words. God gave us his word. So if I could put the second commandment, kind of a, a positive application of the second commandment, it'd be this way, this. Listen to God rather than look for an image of God. Listen to God rather than look for an image of God. We don't make sh- shrines or statutes because, really, Christianity has changed that in our culture. We, don't, we, we know that's wrong. Second commandment, okay, we know that's wrong. But that doesn't mean that we are any less of a visual culture than any other culture around you. I told you that sec- the Israelites, when they got to Egypt, or came out of Egypt, they lived in a very, it was very countercultural not to have a statue. They were a very image-based culture. All the cultures had an image for their God. You, know, you want to know who is a more image-based culture than they were? We are, because we have zillions of them accessible in our pockets at all times. We are a screen-based culture. That probably goes back at least to when color came on the television, TVs became the center of our living rooms forever, right? But now we've moved it from over there, something at the other side of the room, to something we put in our pocket. Think about how much social media thrives off of images. Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, they, they run off of images. Right? That's the thing that gets you motivated. You saw something, it grabbed your attention, and you come back to it over and over again. TVs used to be, now we've got you know, every streaming option, uh, every show, every movie that's ever made, you can probably get to it within 15 minutes, right? It's on demand. You can have images, whatever images you want, as quick as possible. And we're naive to think that that kind of visual input, being visual people, we'd be naive to think that that doesn't affect The way we relate to God. When God did not primarily reveal Himself as an image, but as words. He spoke to us by His Word. All the way back to the 1600s, one of the major uh, steps of progress from the Protestant Reformation is that Luther and Calvin and all these people, you know what they really wanted people to do? Learn how to read. They wanted to teach people to read. Read. They started schools. They wanted people to to get to the Word of God themselves because for generations, the Bible had been only for the elites because they kept it in Latin, which only the really educated people spoke, and they kept it. Bibles were far away, so they made a way to translate the Bible into an everyday language, print as many of them as possible, and teach as many people to read them. It was an incredible transformation in society. And you know what we are today? We're not an illiterate society thanks to so many good advances in our culture. Many of us, if not all of us, have learned how to read. That's a great gift. We are not an illiterate society. We are a post-literate society. Society. We learned how to read, and then we ditched it because we've got a smartphone, and it's more fun, and it's easier, right? We are, we are naive to think that living in an image-based culture that doesn't affect our relationship with God. I want to push you. I want to challenge you to push against being an image-driven person. Now, I'm not just ranting against screen time, although parents, you probably are fighting that battle at home enough on your own, so you don't need me to add to that, we, what we want to do is say, where's my heart? Where's my heart? Am I, am I receiving from God? Am I listening to God? Or am I always driven by images? If God has primarily spoken to us by His Word, then how do we be the people that can receive that Word? Uh, are, I'm not saying you have to be a, a bookworm, a book a day kind of person, although that's great if you are. But how can we be the kind of people who can sit still long enough in front of a paper with ink on it, or on your phone, I guess it's maybe that you're using the devil's tool against him. I don't know whatever. but you're using God's word and allowing God's word to speak to your life. God's word is the most direct way He has spoken to us, so when we think about the Second commandment, a good way to apply this say, are you, are you listening to God's word? Are you looking for images? Are you looking for signs? Are you looking for the next thing with your eyes? Or are you looking with the eyes of your heart? That is, are you listening? To God. When Deuteronomy begins to to talk about this command and and the things around it, it references how God, when he saved his people, did not give them a physical image. Deuteronomy 4, 15 and 16 says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself. How does God reveal Himself? Not by an image. There were things they saw, the mountain was shaken. there was clouds, but that wasn't God. God revealed Himself by speaking to His people. Romans 10 tells us, how are they to believe in Him that they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And then in verse 17 it says, so faith comes from hearing. Faith comes by hearing. 2 Corinthians 5.7, 5, 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not our eyes that lead us to the Lord, it's our ears. It's being able to hear Him with our hearts. The primary organ of faith is not the eye, but the ear. Are you listening? Are you listening to God? The disciple Thomas was given a very gracious sign. He's one of the few. Well, not few, but there's 500 or so that got to see Jesus. But in the spectrum of all the people ever, it's a pretty small number. Pretty amazing number, but pretty small. And Thomas was one of those, one of the disciples Thomas. You may know him as Doubting Thomas. When Jesus graciously, eight days after he resurrected, graciously appears to Thomas, he says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put at your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We are Christians not because we have seen God with our eyes, but if you're a Christian, it's because your heart has been transformed by God and you have seen Him with your heart. You have heard the good news with your ears and you have responded in faith. We are people of faith not because of our eyes, but because of our ears. Faith comes by hearing. And even here in the second commandment, what we're supposed to be doing is hearing how great our God is. As we read that, can you hear how awesome our Lord is? Not can you see Him, but can you hear how great God is? He is zealous. He is jealous for your affections. He is committed to you coming to know Him as He is. He wants you to see the greatness of our God. He is not passive. He is not indifferent. He is passionate toward you. He is decidedly for us. He loves us and wants a relationship with us. He is guarding us from lesser descriptions of Himself. By His grace, He wants to keep you from forming some smaller image of Him because He wants, to see, wants you to see the greatness that is before you, that is our true God. He can't be replaced by anything else. There is no exchange for God. He is good at the very definition of good, unlike anything else is good. There are no equal exchanges for God. It's not as if we could come up to God and say, you know, if I choose the one true God or some other God or non-God, I'll I'll be in the same place no matter what. No, there is only one path, only one Savior. And God wants you to hear about Him. He wants you to know Him because He is the greatest good. There's nothing else that could compare to Him. Without honoring God, without living for His glory, we're living in sin, which is a place of bondage and captivity and a far lesser joy. There is no true abiding joy apart from knowing Him. Praise God that He wants that for you. Verse five, it says, The Lord is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And I want you to hear even the goodness of God in that. God is not saying that we are judged for our parents' sin. The Bible makes that clear. Ezekiel 18 explicitly says it, all kinds of other places. What He is saying is that when we live in sin, this is the warning. Praise God, He warns us. When we live in sin, it doesn't just hurt us. It hurts those around us, and especially hurts those that come after us in our families. We hurt other people when we sin. He doesn't condemn other people because of our sin. He says to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it's the people who hate God that receive the judgment of God. We are condemned for our own sin against God, but our sin hurts other people. So God shows that that's a good thing for him to warn us about thank you God for warning us about the the, the judgment to come but then see in verse 6 about his love verse 6 it says talks about his steadfast love showing steadfast love to thousands the Hebrew word hesed, it's this word for covenant loyalty God has promised love to us far above any other love we could ever imagine and he's promised to show it to us And He is committed to that love for you. He is faithful in His love. He is jealous for that love. He doesn't want you wandering off into some adulterous relationship apart from Him. He is giving you a far greater love than you could ever get anywhere else. And He invites you into that relationship with Him. And what happens when you have that love? It says, Showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Whereas the judgment and the sin that comes, he says, that affects three or four generations. This is a picture of the multitude, the overflowing fountain of God's love. When you experience God's love, it pours out into myriads, pours out into thousands. What grace, what love, what awesome glory of our God. Many of us can point back to our our parents' faith, our own parents' faith, and say, this is what God did. He poured into my parents, who then poured into me. Praise God for the overflow of that. But many others of us didn't get it from our parents. And God's love has been poured into us from somewhere else. Praise God that when He pours His love into somebody, it flows out not just to the kids, but to thousands, to all around, so that we can experience, we can have an opportunity to know the love of God. Even here in the commandments, God is so good, so gracious, so loving. Do you know Him? Are you listening to Him? Are you seeking the Lord are you seeking to know him as he truly is or are you trying to put him in a box doesn't matter how good of a box builder you are doesn't matter how big of a box builder you are doesn't matter how great and beautiful it is it's still a box and God doesn't fit in it because God is far greater far greater than any box we could ever make are you trying to form God are you trying to make God into your own image trying to make him fit into some way that you're limiting him if so repent and Instead, listen. and so just look with the eyes of your heart, look, look with the eyes of your, of, your, of your eyes, your regular eyes, look with the eyes of your heart so you can believe in Him. If you're in search of God today, if you're looking for Him, look with your ears, look with your heart. If you've already found God, then keep looking for Him with your heart. Keep listening to Him because he is, there's more to Him. There's always more to Him. Don't, don't whittle God down to just the God you could uncomprehend as an eight-year-old. If you came to know Christ at a young age, praise God for that. Don't, don't whittle God down to just that. Keep growing in God. Also, don't whittle God down to just what you knew about God yesterday. His mercies are new every single day. You will never get to the bottom of God. It is a He is a depth that we could never reach the bottom of, and it is joy all the way down. Keep exploring God. Keep listening to God. Keep seeking Him, and you will hear Him. The first commandment is about who you worship, the one true God. The second commandment is about how you worship, listening to Him, not making an image of Him. And I'll give you two, two fa- final comments, two final observations to help you worship Him rightly. Part of the reason we're called not to make an image of God is that God's already done that. In fact, there are about 7.8 billion of them walking the earth right now. The reason why you and I don't make images of God One of the reasons, there's lots of reasons we've been talking about. One of the reasons is we are made in the image of God. God doesn't want us to make images because He made us in His image, and He invites us to live that way. Live as one's made in the image of God. Don't bow down to these images. We don't worship people. We are not God. We are a representation of God, and we are meant to glorify Him with everything we do. God rescued us by grace. He has brought us into relationship with Him and invited us to keep keep His commandments, living in that relationship. And as we live as representatives of God who point others to God, we're showing glory to God. And we're inviting others to that same relationship. When we live out the commandments, we are living as God's images. And one of those, we'll see, is the second half of the Ten Commandments is about our relationship with other people. We treat other people with the respect they deserve being made in God's image. Last observation about this commandment is that if we're going to have ears of faith, we must listen to Jesus, who is the perfect image of the invisible God. Colossians 1:15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If we want to know God for who he is, we have to know him through his son. Jesus is the perfect display of God's character on earth. God sent his son to reveal who he is in a greater way than ever before. He is the Word made flesh. He is the one that has been spoken to us so we can hear from God Himself. Sometimes walking with God can be, can be frustrating because God doesn't always show up right where we want Him to, when we want Him to, how we want Him to. And so the temptation of our hearts is to say, God, if you're really God, this is what I need you to do right now. And we demand God follow our commands. That's treating Him as an idol, treating Him as something we can control. God invites us to something far greater. It's hard sometimes, but it's far greater. It's a relationship of trusting that He is God, He is good, and He knows what's best. And we can have faith in Him, not because we've seen Him with our eyes, but because we've seen Him with our hearts. We have heard Him, and we believe in Him. As we walk a life of faith, as we walk a life following Christ, listening to His Word, we're doing so knowing of the hope that is to come. Matthew 5, 8 is one of the Beatitudes. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you walk with God, when you walk in relationship with God, when you live out the commandments, following Christ, listening to His Word, you're getting a glimpse of who God is. You're getting to see God in a very real way, not with your eyes, but with your ears. You're getting to hear Him. And you're doing so knowing that one day it will all be fulfilled. Revelation 22 pictures the throne of God in heaven, the, the, the water, the stream that runs through the city of God. talks about the tree of life. And then it says this in Revelation 22:4: 4. They will see His face. There is coming a day when you will see God face to face. And it's going to be glorious. Far beyond anything we could ever comprehend. It's going to be so sweet and so good and so glorious. And knowing that day is coming, we can listen to Him now. We can listen to Him as He speaks to us, as He teaches us His Word. So we don't limit Him to something we can control. We listen to Him, and we seek to follow Him. Listen to God rather than look for an image of God. And as He speaks to you, let that lead you to worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to be in worship today. God, we confess where we have fallen short of not honoring you for who you are and limiting you in so many ways. And so, God, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts to carve out, to whittle away our sin and our temptation. And instead, God, may we see you more fully, not with our eyes, but with our hearts, with our ears as we listen to you. May you use your word to shape uh, what we know of you so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. God, we confess, it'd be we many times think it'd be better because we think it'd be easier if we could just have a little statue or something, but God, we know how much greater it is that we get to hear your word and we get to follow you by faith. God, may we follow you into right and good worship today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.